as I was thinking about our young people being on retreat this weekend, I was thinking that uh, in some ways it's a bit of a shame that when I come to face in Genesis, in our studies in Genesis, the subject of marriage, they're not here because it's a subject they need to know about as the world presents them with so many lies and bad images about marriage. If you're a mom or dad of a young person who's away and in your concern about this, maybe you can get the CD of the message and find some kind of a bribe to uh, get them to listen to a message about marriage if you feel that's important to them. I'm going to begin reading in Genesis 2, actually in the middle, I guess I'll read it beginning in the middle of verse 20 and go forward. The verses we're especially looking at today as we finish this second chapter are verses 23 to 25. This is God's holy word to us. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's Word. As I have surfed through the cable channels on TV in the past, I fly past all kinds of things that appear to be so ridiculous I don't even want to investigate what they are. But one program that I've noticed several times and never investigated is a program called Whose Wedding Is It Anyway? I have seen a few promotional spots for this, so enough to gather that it's apparently a crude so-called reality show about brides behaving badly, haranguing their family and friends over the many details of frantic wedding preparations. Well, I know what pastors try to do in preparation for weddings. As we work with engaged couples, and Dr. Light in particular counsels with them for a half a dozen times, we try to focus beyond preparation for a mere wedding. Because after all, at least at its worst, a wedding might be little more than a family reunion and fashion show and expensive party. And that's sometimes all it is. But our emphasis is on marriage, not weddings. Every wedding ceremony is only a prelude to that tremendous God-ordained institution that we call marriage. And if a bride or groom ever challenged me and said, whose marriage is this anyway, my answer would be ready. Not yours, that's for sure. For marriage is not a human institution that human beings dreamed up or that human notions and concepts control. God, most high, is the architect of marriage. And it was the foremost of every 
institution he made for man, originating before there was a government or a church or a school or any other social organization. And out of marriage, that fundamental institution, every other social institution of God had its springboard and origin. You can go to the large bookstores we have around now and you'll find a section where there is a whole rack probably of black and yellow covered uh, paper-bound instruction manuals from all different fields of human endeavor, things you might want to learn or do, and they all have a common title. I know you've seen them. Cooking for Dummies, Digital Photography for Dummies, Chess for Dummies, and so on. I don't want to insult the Word of God when I say this, but I would say, at least in our terms, Genesis 2, 23 to 25 might be labeled marriage for dummies. Because here are the basics for the plan of God for the first man and woman and every married couple to follow after them. And here are the very basic principles about marriage which has, of course, many things written about it later in Scripture, many teachings and principles like Ephesians 5, many examples. And by the way, it's always fascinated me that there, there are more bad examples of marriages in the Bible than there are good examples, but God teaches us even by that. But it all begins here. It all traces back here. This is, you might say, the original fountain of God's teaching about marriage. Scripture would have us understand that a man and woman are never more like God in His image as they are or should be, at least, on their wedding day when they commit themselves unconditionally to one another. One of the reasons we know God honors marriage is that the grand picture of who and what Jesus Christ is, given in the entire Scripture, is that of a bridegroom offering himself unto death to rescue his bride, the church. And the Scripture pattern shows us that either you will seek God's biblical guidelines about serving another person in marriage and thereby find fulfillment as you literally give yourself away to your spouse, or you certainly can Go through marriage pursuing your own self-centered rules and your own self-centered habits, and you will inherit the shattering heartaches that will surely come, and it will be wreaked upon others as well. In marriage, we learn what it means to die daily for another person, to lay down our life. But amazingly, in so doing, according to the biblical pattern, we actually discover our life. What we learn is that weddings are a very economically expensive way to spend a single morning or afternoon of your life, but marriage is an even more costly but rewarding way to spend a lifetime according to God's plan. I want you to think about a three-legged stool today with my three points. Genesis 2, 23 to 25 presents, you can call them legs or pillars, that support a structure, the structure of marriage. Without any of these three pillars, the structure teeters. 
I'm going to call these the pillar of romantic delight, the pillar of covenant fidelity, and the pillar of one flesh intimacy. The stool doesn't stand secure on only one or two of those legs. Let's consider this. First, in verse 23, I believe God is showing us here in this exclamation from Adam, the pillar of romantic delight. You realize these are the very first words in the Bible spoken by a human being. Check me. Go back. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, up to this point, Adam has not had a recorded word that he has spoken. I don't assume maybe it was the first thing he ever said, but it's the first recorded word from a human being, Genesis 2.23. And what kind of a word is it? This, as he looks at Eve, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she's taken out of man. I don't think any way a dramatic actor could read that could possibly capture the ecstasy in this man's voice. The last time we saw how the man had to discover his utter aloneness in the universe, it was not good that he was without a companion to match his weakness with her strength and vice versa. And then in verse 21 and 22 last time, we looked at this mysterious symbolic miracle of God creating the woman out of the man with no human witness, and yet the Spirit of God gives this explanation for it, this surgical removal from the fleshy substance of the man so that the woman would be of his substance, his equal before God, and yet marvelously different from him. And now I think it's not wrong to have in our minds the picture of the Creator God, just about like the father of the bride, only not nervous like fathers of brides always are, leading the woman he had made to the side of Adam. I wonder if you've ever been at a wedding where, you know that moment, that sort of magic moment, there's the bride, she's coming down the aisle on her father's arm, there's the groom, nobody ever looks at him. I, I, I tend to look at him because I can see what he's doing and her, but everybody else is looking at her. Have you ever been at a wedding where the groom broke into song to greet his bride? Maybe you have. I don't know. That, that's probably happened sometime. I'm, I'm sure it was planned if it did happen. I've presided over more than 200 weddings, and some very odd things have happened in them, but nobody, no groom has ever broken into song or recited poetry spontaneously. But you have to think of that as exactly what Adam did. This is a poetic passage here, a song, that it's a song of his delight. As he recognized, here was the woman who would dispel the aching loneliness that he had discovered in himself, the looked-for helper with the strengths that matched his weaknesses, and he would find out that his strengths matched her weaknesses. Poetry and song were the best way for him to express what he was feeling. Adam's wait was over. God had removed a piece of him, as it were, signifying that neither of these two persons would, would ever become everything they might potentially become until they were rejoined again and the missing piece was gathered in. I use the word that 
we speak about the right understanding of man and woman last time, the big word complementarity. Once again, a word that means we are equals before God, absolutely of the same value before Him without any doubt whatsoever. And yet we are different. And anyone who wants to deny that different and deny the different roles is a fool. And they're heading for a suicidal understanding of man and women. We are different in our strengths, our emotions, our physical gifts, and the roles God wants us to play. He gave us roles that should harmonize, not compete or conflict. Well, I would call verse 23 the pillar of romantic delight and remind you that every marriage in some manner, if you would think back, okay, you folks have been married for decades, cast your minds back a little bit. I'm thinking about a box of letters in our basement with five-cent stamps on them that were written on a daily basis in the late 1960s in the second year of my courtship of my wife. i got to get those things out of there before the grandchildren inherit them. (laughs) I'm serious. We were in love, and we had to write every single day to each other when we were apart. My younger sister said, that's ridiculous. What does he find to say? But romantic love was heart-thumping, you know, goosebumps on the skin and stars in the eyes at that point in our lives, as it is with just about every relationship, except, of course, the arranged marriages, which do not normally happen in our country. God is in favor of romantic delight. He's so in favor of it that David's son Solomon wrote a whole book about it to celebrate erotic love, romantic love. His absolute delight in the woman he loved. And this is the way marriages do get launched. And it shouldn't be something that absolutely dies. You know, men, I think we're to be the guardians of this. It's very easy to think, oh, romance. That's what we did when we were dating. You know, we were, oh, everybody was all dewy-eyed. Now we're married. That's dead. Well, let me tell you something. Your wife would love to find out that you don't think it's dead. And a slight effort in your part to show her that there is a little spark of romance still alive will usually find her responding quite readily to it because it has not gone out in her thoughts and in her mind. This emotional side of love, yes, it flares up initially and burns bright and then it it settles down and hopefully it burns more like a pilot light that is never completely extinguished. Romantic love is an essential pillar of marriage, but it's only the first leg of the stool. And if you sit on a one-legged stool all your life, you'll have trouble. You'll, You'll have a moment when you wobble and you'll be flat on your back. And you'll come to some point, as people do so foolishly today, when they say, oh, Uh, oh, I just don't love him anymore. I just don't love her anymore. I used to love her. I used to feel great, but I don't feel those things anymore. Well, guess what? You're absolutely normal. But if that's your excuse for ending a marriage, you've been sitting on a one-legged stool. Romance all by itself is, someone said, is like only eating double fudge chocolate cake all the time. It's delicious. It's great. But it won't do for you what meat and vegetables will do to nourish you and sustain you throughout your life. You need double fudge chocolate cake, once in a while anyway. 
But it takes more to support a true marriage than the initial flare-up of delight that is romance. So let's go to the second one and the very central pillar of every marriage, and it's in verse 24. For this reason a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is recognizable in biblical language as the language of a covenant. And this is the pillar of a covenant vow. In verse 24, Adam, Adam is not the spokesman. He's the spokesman in 23, but now, and it, most of you in your Bibles, the way they've you know, indented 23, showing it's, it's a quote from someone, come back to the regular setup of the type in 24, because this is Moses writing now. And someone, by the way, commented to me, well, why does it say Adam should leave his father and mother? He didn't have a father and mother. Granted, he didn't. This is Moses, God inspiring the author of this book, who's now looking back on what God did in Eden and is saying, here's the pattern I see for a covenant coming out of this man and woman being joined together. Moses is saying, leave your father and mother, be united to your wife, and you'll be one flesh. That's covenant language. This is taking the whole matter to a new level, to the level of promises made, not just privately, not just what you whisper to one another, but what you say out in public before witnesses, before your family, before the governing agencies that is sealed and done with the force of law. I wonder if people even think about the fact that when we use classic wedding vows, they don't ask you, how do you feel about her? That's not in any wedding service I've ever seen. Uh, Do you love her? Are you all gushy and romantic towards her? That's not in the, the service. You're asked questions about what you will promise. And you're asked to make promises before God Almighty as your witness. Things that now bring steel and concrete into those feelings that might have begun the relationship. Pledges and vows And the first thing that this vow is said to do is to ask you to leave father and mother. Well, now think about that. The Bible elsewhere says that to honor your father and mother is is one of your very first duties socially. And this does not contradict that. This does not say dishonor your father and mother. But it does say now you've got another person to honor who is more critical than even your honor for the parents who brought you into this world. And if those precious parents of yours should try somehow to insert themselves between a husband and a wife, the husband, hopefully, or the wife, depending on the circumstance, needs to gently but firmly say, Mom, Dad, I really love you, and I will always try to honor you, but you're crowding my marriage. I cannot fit close to my wife when you're crowding in as close as you are. And a new family unit is under construction here, and we need the space to build it God's way. That's not always easy to say, is it? But you've got to consider it, because there's a new person to be honored whose place is more important than the honor you owe to your parents. The other key to covenant action here is said in older translations. It's called cleaving 
We don't use that word for sticking with someone, but literally the Bible's word is sticking to your spouse, being faithful to that person and seeking that person above everything else in the world. In Genesis 34, a man named Shechem loved the daughter of Jacob, whose name was Dinah. And when Shechem was in love with Dinah, the the text reads in the most literal translation, the soul of Shechem stuck to Dinah. This guy was stuck. He was linked. He was bonded to her soul. If you've ever seen a blacksmith's work, you know how they'll heat two iron bars up to a red-hot heat, and depending on what they're making, they put those bars together at red-hot heat and then hammer them, and, and they can hammer them to be forged into one joined piece of steel. They stick, and they stick in a permanent way. I hope you not, won't think I'm trading in the ridiculous, but whenever I think of covenant vows and covenant vows in marriage, I think of one of my favorite childhood characters that I love reading Dr. Seuss's stories to my grandchildren. Actually, having grandchildren is good because it just gives you an excuse to read Dr. Seuss, who's good to read anyway. But my favorite is Horton the Elephant. Remember Horton? Horton made a promise. I don't have to tell you the whole story, but the promise became very inconvenient for him to keep. In fact, everybody ridiculed him and said, you don't have to keep that promise. Don't be silly. The person you made it to doesn't even expect you to keep it. Horton remained steadfast, and he said, I bet some of you can say it with me, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, because an elephant's faithful 100%. Well, there are times in our marriages when we would do well to imitate Horton the elephant and his understanding of covenant. I don't play golf But I once read a passage written by the, I guess, really legendary American golfer, Ben Hogan. And Hogan said this one time. It's a great quote. All that is actually required to play a good game of golf is to properly execute a relatively small number of fundamental movements. All that is necessary to play a good game of golf is to properly execute a relatively small number of fundamental movements. Well, that's also all that's required to remain faithful to a spouse. You see, you keep covenant vows as you persist in doing certain small marital things, listening, cherishing, deliberately being kind, putting down your anger, Small acts of service to the other person. And these things build, you see. They build a fabric of faithfulness that builds up into a love that is actually sweeter and richer than what initial romantic passion alone can ever offer to another person. Romance alone is based on changeable feelings. We're talking about going beyond that into the integrity of promises, And when a wife or a husband tells the counselor, I just don't love her anymore, that person needs to be told, keep on acting out the love that you pledged. And as you act it out, your love will live again. 
I really believe we could teach young couples what vows of faithfulness in covenant are about by assigning them to follow certain elderly husbands or wives about on some of their routines. And I'm thinking of people in our congregation whom I honor very highly. People married more than 60 years, some of them. I would assign a young couple to tag along with a man who goes daily to the Alzheimer's care unit to feed lunch to his wife, whose blank eyes look at him and don't have any idea who he is. But yet he goes this day, and he'll go the next day, and he'll go the day after that fulfilling a daily routine that is not based on the whimsical emotion that once was romance, but based on a built-up pattern and bonds of covenant fidelity that say, until death do us part, I will be in service of your life. And that husband could no more abandon his wife than he could stop eating and feeding his own body. That's covenant faithfulness at its best. And it's the main pillar of marriage that is most often abandoned or harmed that causes the stool to collapse. But there's a third pillar, and it's in verse 25. For here we have the pillar of one flesh intimacy. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, they felt no shame, so you shouldn't have shame in considering this verse. It shouldn't embarrass you. It's interesting that most mentions of human nakedness in the Old Testament are about shame because it was a shameful thing. Nudity of the human body exposed to others' casual gaze gaze was a very shameful thing in Israel and in Judaism. But here is the unique confrontation of husband and wife who were physically naked, but there's more to this verse than than the physical element. The verse signifies the total exposure of one person to the other. It not only has to do with physical desire and sexuality, it does have to do with that, but it has more than that. These two people were able, it seems, to look into each other's souls There were no secrets. There was no deception. There were no evasions. They were open books to each other. And that, of course, is God's ideal for marital one flesh intimacy that is not only sexual, but it is emotional and mental. It's a strong, amazing thing. Within the safety of a covenant vow, you see, the vow builds a shelter around this third leg. And you are secure to, in a sense, be naked with another person and be known for everything that you are without the fear that that person will reject you because of the covenant fidelity, the vow that protects it. Now, chapter 3 is soon going to show us how this comes apart. The same column on my page. My, chapter 3 begins in the middle of the column in my Bible, and, and before the column ends in verse 7. If you want to look down as 
as the man and woman sinned, their eyes were open and they realized they were naked and they had to cover themselves. Now there was guilt. Now there was shame. You see, God's pattern started to come apart because of sin. And so you say, well, pastor, you're talking about an ideal world then, and, and the fall has come, and how, how can that ideal of verse 25 have any meaning for us anymore? We can't turn back the clock to when there was no adultery or pornography or scantily clad models selling everything from cars to peanut butter. You know, how, how do we get back the other side of the fall to Genesis 2.25? Well, I believe this verse is teaching us that certainly the eros dimension of love, married physical love, can still be a sanctuary, but it depends on covenant. Verse 25 depends on verse 24. The protective fence of a covenant vow of fidelity around the husband and wife is how that intimacy can thrive. Without it, that intimacy is almost a mockery. And so here you see in these two verses, 24 and 25, you really have the wellspring of everything the Scripture is going to teach about sexuality. We have young people who say, show me where in the Bible it says you can't sleep with somebody before you're married. Well, there isn't actually a verse that says thou shalt not sleep with somebody before you're married. But right here you have the beginning of the whole thing, that Forbidding sexual intimacy before or during marriage with other people is based on the covenant vow of fidelity in an exclusive manner. And that covenant's like a fence. It's like a roof over the relationship. And when you seek sexual expression without the protection of the covenant, it's a recipe for pain. Men and women become sexual users and consumers, not covenant partners, bound together in trust. So those are the three legs, romance, covenant, and one flesh intimacy. Those are the legs that support a biblical marriage. Now, most of the time, if the, if the stool only has two legs, it's the middle leg that's missing or broken, the covenant leg. Folks, I would tell you that of anything we pastors face in practical ministry. It's the abuses of marriage that turn our hair gray week in and week out. Neither John Light nor I had very much gray hair when we first became pastors of this church. You can check us out for yourselves nowadays. The disasters people bring on themselves and their children in the exertion of pride selfishness, jealousy, anger, lust within marriage are horrible. Every time our congregation, almost without fail, anytime I'm with the Wednesday evening prayer group and they turn to the prayer list, who's having surgery, who's bereaved, there's a little switch in my brain that says, I wish you could read the real prayer list, the confidential prayer list that you can't read, but I know only too well of the horror that's going on, of God's pattern being ruined by selfish, sinful behavior. The glory, beauty, and freedom of the man and woman in the Garden of Eden in the first marriage seems idyllic 
But we cannot write it off as being an ideal that cannot be realized. Even though we have inherited all the disasters brought by the fall, we have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's made relationships askew all over the place. The grace of God stands ready for recovery. But that recovery begins when two partners, not just one, two, humble themselves deeply before Christ. Because it is innate selfishness that has to be broken down. The world says, take care of you. Me, 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 me. Protect me. Assert me. That's what the world tells you to do. That self is like an ogre that needs to have a stake driven through its heart for grace to begin to work, to cleanse, to forgive, to rebuild. I've seen God do it. And it's marvelous when you see it. Jesus, the model bridegroom, paid the price of his own life for his bride, the church of believers. And I tell you, no matter what age you are, no matter what stage of marriage you're in, whether you're not yet married When you step up to a marriage altar, God is bidding a man or a woman to come and at that place die to self and rely upon His enabling grace to live for another person in covenant bonds of faithfulness. God's Genesis 2, designed for marriage, demands that you do nothing less than give your life away. But wonder of wonders, you can get it back again, even better than it was before. Let's pray together. Father, much grace is needed here. The imperfect preacher and husband has tried to open your perfect plan. Imperfect people, husbands and wives, have heard it. May we not be so jaded and selfish that we disbelieve that in you, in our surrender to your control and your calling, there can be a new birth of living one for the other and for you, our gracious Lord and God. Help us where we are weak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we sing the first and last?